Folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, June the 15th, 2021. As promised yesterday, we will have Joseph Simcox on in just a moment. I do mean just a moment. I'm going to be very, very, very brief with my intro today because my interview with Joseph today is probably one of the longest interviews I've ever conducted over two hours. I, I make a comment during this interview that I kind of feel like Joe Rogan with his long format three-hour interviews. But the reason it happened is because it was so worth doing. You're going to hear, uh, I think Joseph and I have an intellectual brotherhood. This was an amazing freaking interview, and it is going to challenge many, and I mean many, of your preconceptions. There's going to be things you're going to hear him say, and you're going to be like, no. And then when you hear us talk about him, you'll see, oh, I see what he's saying. And, and to me, that is, that is the definition of learning, to have something that you believe can't be true, And moments later realize there is truth in it, and here's how that truth plays out, and here's why it matters. So today we're going to go straight into it. We're not going to have any sponsor segments or anything, because again, this was long. And uh, I do want to give you a quote of the day, and this has something to do with what comes out of this conversation toward the end. I won't explain it, I'll just give you the quote. It's by Louis Nazir, who was an American attorney. Um, and he said, actually it was a Jewish American attorney, but anyway, he said one time, A man who works with his hands is a laborer. A man who works with his hands and his brain is a craftsman. But a man who works with his hands and his brain and his heart is an artist. Louis Nazir. And it will make perfect sense why I chose that quote, probably about 85% through this interview. All right, and with that, I want to say, hey, Joseph, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. You know, a year ago, we would have thought that this would have not been happening still, but certainly things are pretty crazy, and the planet is as insane as ever. You know, it, it's interesting. I had you on uh, a little over a year ago, actually, and we were in the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdowns, and um, I had actually booked you prior to any of it starting, and then, like, you just happened to land on the schedule booking-wise right at the beginning when they went completely Nazi across the world. And uh, we were talking about plants, and we ended up having that discussion plus a real discussion of, of the, 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 the geopolitical climate that was coming out of that, which is as bad as we thought it was. I think it's worse now than we envisioned, as you're alluding I to. I think one of the things we have to ask ourselves in retrospect of a year is a lot of the – Questions we had in the beginning now seem to become even more nebulous. I mean, like I was speaking recently with a medical practitioner of probably 60 years, and I said, you know, I would like to know how many other bronchial, pulmonary, respiratory diseases require an analysis that takes a probe up your nose. If, for example, we presume that your hands are contagious, If your saliva is contagious, if your vaporized breath is contagious, why in the hell can't they detect the virus in one of those simple manners rather than shoving something all the way up your nose? 
That's a good logical question to me. Well, not just up your nose, like up your nose around the corner and, and damn near to your freaking brain. Um, yeah, exactly. So what is this about? And this is something that it still preoccupies me, and it preoccupies me more that people don't ask the question. But to bring all this back to our camp, to the concept of the future of humanity, it goes back to a lot uh, that I believe has to do with a disconnect with nature. And I think this is where you want to lead this right now is yeah, our relationship yeah. to nature. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, let's pull back a little further even just for the audience's sake. And let's start out because many people probably didn't hear our interview. I guess it's like 13, 14 months ago. Who is Joseph Simcox? Kind of what's your background, man? Just so people know who, who they're hearing from today. Well, you know, I'm not an institutionalized uh, criminal. And saying that <laughs> jokingly is that I have studied botany uh, as a passion, as a dedication. And I think this is something that's important and relevant to say is that many of us in this modern world are somehow confused or we've been propagandized to believe that intellectualism is only the priority and property of institutions. And that is something extremely important to say. So I'm not an institutionalized botanist. I'm not an institutionalized uh, biologist. But I would go on to claim that I'm probably one of the foremost knowledgeable people in the world on edible plants. So for the last uh, 20, 30 plus years, I've been gallivanting around the globe at a rather crazy rate, trying with trying to identify the world's plant food resources. And why is this important? It's not because I'm so enamored with plants. I hate to say that. I, I haven't ever had a true love affair with a plant I have with humans. But I'm doing this because plants are so integrally necessary and related to our own human success. We depend upon them every single day of our life. And yet in this contrived modern existence, most people don't even dwell on that and don't even think about it. So my interest is to reveal to people, if this is a successful mission, what we really need to do to fix some of our biggest problems. So that is, in a nutshell, what motivates Joseph Simcox. Cool, cool, man. And I think it's important to note, like, I don't care if you're like a complete carnivore, Everything you just said about our needs for plants is true because what does the thing you're eating eat, right? Like, so, uh, we are all dependent upon basically a few inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Like, without that, there is no life on this planet and plants are the genesis of all life in that we couldn't breathe without them. We, our, our ecosystems couldn't function without them. And your work into that world has been, uh, absolutely amazing. I've, I, when I had you on, I learned about plants I didn't know about that, you know, for me, that that's a big thing. Like, I, I've done entire shows on, like, 20 plants you never heard of over the 13 years I've been doing this show. So the, the wealth of knowledge you are there is extreme. However, yeah. you are more than that. That It's not just, hey, here's a bunch of plants. And you've kind of taken that piece into a claim that modern man is detached from nature, and that's a source of a lot of our problems and our obstacles to actually fixing the things that are wrong in the world. What do you mean when you say modern man's detachment from nature? Hey, well, just think about this. I mean, in our modern existence, many of us, the great majority of, say, Western humans, if we talk about Europe, if we talk about the United States, Canada, Australia, most of those people now 
are urbanites. They live in cities. And we talked about this briefly in the last uh, show when we gave the example of children not knowing where even milk comes from. That was a prime example. But it's much deeper and more insidious than that. It is something which is intrinsically wrong with society. In the event of the conveniences that the modern era has presumably brought us, relieving us from the toil of the earth, it also has detached us and made us incapable of actually comprehending the real existence of humans as it's uh, enmeshed in nature. So the detachment problem, the detachment syndrome. A few things to point out. Something like 60 years ago, something like 70 years ago, roughly 50% of Americans produced or processed roughly 50% of their food. That meant that a lot of human activity was centered around the attachment to the earth and the production of food. As modernization took its effect, as the conveniences of the modern era, as transportation and distribution logistics surplaced those production methods, which used to be very close to heart, people became more and more and more vulnerable to those things that they depend upon. If you just take this example, if we think about the blackouts on the West Coast, we talked West and East Coast a few years back, we realized that these city dwellers are completely vulnerable to the circumstances that be in a way that is disconcerting to say the least and in a more dramatic way, really a compelling urgency and emergency because we can't have human security if people can't produce their food because you're relying on other people to produce your food. I mean, what would people do, 8 million people in the metropolitan New York area, if there wasn't electricity for a week or if the transportation systems broke down? So those are very salient and clear points, and I covered that a little bit in the past. But that issue that has transpired, that evolution, is a convoluted and determinedly planned evolution to make people vulnerable and dependent. This is the detachment that is so nefarious. This is the detachment that is the, 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 the monster in the room that nobody sees. Nobody thinks about it. We rely upon institutionalized academics. And by no means am I against academia. I'm not against institutions. I'm against what they have created in mass against common sense. Now, let me repeat that. I'm against what they have created in mass against common sense. So we depend upon the purveyors of information to tell us the state of our world, the state of humanity, the state of people starving, the state of how we're going to technologically superiorly advance ourselves. And we don't have the damn common sense to understand that the bottom line ingredients are food, water and shelter. And those are things that man can be pretty autonomous about because for millennia we were. Now, you know. A few months back, my cell phone went on the skids. It was overloaded, maybe 200,000 photos. I think it was supercharged despite its grand memory. And it went dead. And it, it blocked. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to fix it. But one day went by, two days went by, three days went by, and I started to like it. I wasn't talking to 30 people a day. I wasn't writing WhatsApp messages to 20 people who I don't care about, not to be vulgar. But it's just a realization that we're so entrapped in this media world, we're so entrapped in mass communications and social media 
that we don't even stop for a moment to think about the realities around us. The purveyors of those ingredients years ago told us how cell phones would uh, detach us from all those onerous things like communication where you had to drive and visit a person or write a real letter. Now we can just do it instantaneously, but it doesn't save time because most people, according to my uh, observations, waste their days sitting on top of these contrivances. I mean, you go to a restaurant with couples sitting in front of each other playing on cell phones. So we really become the victims of our lies. And we're the victims of our lives when it refers to nature. We're the victims of our lives when we think that man is ruining the world because that's what the media tells us. The media tells us in a very concerted way that we are destroying the planet, that humans are destroying the earth, and we have to save the earth. I mean, just think about this ridiculous uh, Fridays for the earth or whatever it is by the young Norwegian who have all these adolescents and young people marching around claiming that they got to save the earth. Do you know, Jack, I've now been to 140 countries, and that's not a boast. That's a reality, and sure. I've been on over 500 expeditions. And in those expeditions, I've had a very determined way of looking at countries, assessing what I have read, assessing what I've been told, and then comparing that to what I see as a physical, ecological reality. The fact that I mention people in, in derogatory terms such as institutionalized robots and talking heads is not to demean them, but it's to say that these ill-informed modern experts know too much about a few things and way too little about others. They don't know about the real situation on planet Earth. After traveling immensely, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, and this last week, I put on 7,000 miles in Central America. 7,000 miles, of, of, or 7,000 kilometers, excuse me, and over in a 10-day period, driving through countrysides, driving through valleys, driving through mountains. Everywhere I go, I sit there and ask myself the question, what are the possibilities and what are we told? If you're not planting most of the arable lands, if you're not planting mountains, if you're not planting anything, you can't sit there and talk about realistically determining what food potential is. Most of Mexico, most of Guatemala, most of many of these countries are followed because they're not even farming. Because guess what? We set up economic systems which don't make it beneficial. The corn farmers in Mexico have basically set aside their hoes and their, their shovels and their plows because there's a trade agreement. It was known as NAFTA. Now it's something else, which allows the importation or shall we say the exportation of corn into Mexico, killing centuries, if not millennia of corn producers, because we can produce in an industrialized fashion corn cheaper than they can. But is that really is that really profitable? Or is that extraordinarily dangerous? So our detachment from nature and our relationship to these ignoramuses who claim to be experts telling us the future of the world is really something that has to be seriously questioned. No, I completely agree. In fact, I think you're nicer to them than I am because you seem to give them a bit of an excuse that is in ignorance. And what I have seen over the years, but I have seen like front and center lately is absolute positive denial of fact, where it is so blatantly obvious that it's denial of fact 
that I don't believe even the bit-rate journalist writing an article or doing a piece on the television actually believes that they're telling the truth. I think they now know that they're lying, but I think it's part of the big lie, this whole idea that, you know, basically humans are a destructive force and that humans can't be trusted to care for themselves. So even though we're lying to you, we're doing it for your own good. Yeah, look, for instance, like, I know this isn't about plants or the earth in general, but like, yeah, there's all these dangerous things about the vaccine, but it's better that you don't know the truth about that. It's better that you think it's all okay because, yes, while several thousand to tens of thousands or even a 100,000 people will die globally, it's less people than if we didn't do it. So we're going to lie to you. So there, lie, there is an ignorance there, but there's also a known, you see what I'm saying, there's a known lie. This idea that, like, farming is bad. Well, what kind of farming? Because now, supposedly, we're going to eat Beef that's made from vegetables, which is bizarro land, and that's going to fix things. But like you said, it's the cornfields throughout the Midwestern United States that are the dangerous thing, not all of this historical farming that's been done in Mexico since before uh, any European set foot on the continent that's it, it, creating dead zones in, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Like, it's everything is so backwards. It's bizarro land. And I just don't give the excuse of ignorance anymore. I think they knew full well what they're doing. And I think they do it for the purpose of controlling humanity. And, and that's why these people, like, they don't get it. Like, you and I have traveled. You've traveled more than me. But, I mean, even just like if my wife and I drive a few hundred miles in the United States, most of the land we drive through on interstates is undeveloped land. And some of it probably needs to stay that way, but lots of it could be made productive in different ways. I mean, and, but if you grow up and you live in Hackensack, New Jersey, and your idea of a trip to nature is Central Park, New York, you don't have under, any understanding of the vast wilderness that's still out there. It's, it's vast. I mean, and so talking about those 7,000 kilometers that I went across, when you come to urbanized areas, you realize the attraction to the urbanized area for the uh, disadvantaged rural citizen is very large. They see the action, they see the lights, they see the potential for economic opportunity. And so we have these megalopolis cities and vast swaths of land which are un, uh, uncultivated, untended. Now, I like pulling out basket cases because basket cases give you the the chance to confront the lies. And Bangladesh is one of those. It's a size country of a more or less Michigan. And okay. it has about 120, 130 million people in it. Michigan, contrarily, has about 14, 15 million to my last uh, understanding. So it's about 10 times more populous than Michigan. And it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And it could be labeled properly a basket case country. When I was in Bangladesh and in my travels, I made assessments for my, okay, what is my assessment? My assessment is to say, what if the people had the common sense to use their hands, which most people have two of them, to tend the earth, to symbiotically collaborate with nature? And what is the potential to produce and plant and, and enhance the environment? It's immense. I left Bangladesh with a thought which sounds absurd, that maybe they don't have enough people to do all the work that they need to do because the landscape isn't very well done. And I could see where just my method of tending the earth 
would increase production by 20, 30 times. And people scoff at that because industrial agriculture has no ideas about layering and multiplication of space and about the seasonality and about the way of, of using the diversity of nature to man's advantage. Now, there's some very key points which are used by these manipulators. And I go to one of the haloed, uh, haloed journals of, shall we say, natural history. Let's, let's talk about National Geographic. I'm sure you were, as a curious youngster, a person who liked to read National Geographic. Is that true? Absolutely. And I knew you were going to pick that one. But as soon as you started down that sentence, I'm like, he's going to say Nat Geo. So go ahead. So, so you and I grew up with Nat Geo being a completely objective reporting as it was, giving you this eye into the world, eye into cultures, eye into everything. And then they come into this social, political era where everything is socially correct and their messages are so distorted, so contrived, and so irreconceivably slanted and skewed that I can't even stand to pick the thing up because it makes me absolutely disgusted to think that I once held National Geographic in the highest of acclaim. In fact, Paul Zell was one of my childhood heroes. Dr. Rushi, who was a hummingbird expert and a butterfly collector in Brazil, was one of my heroes. There were innumerable people who were heroes for me from National Geographic. But to say that today, it is a disgusting Malthusian organization that has such a bent. I mean, it, it's just complete propaganda and contrivances. And their accuracy has to be doubted sincerely when they would print that they discovered a dinosaur with feathers and they did a document that that was, you know, not real before <laughs> putting it on the cover. Huh. Yeah, I, I have to say that was one of my go-tos as a kid, like the, the library at school, like you're always waiting for the new one to come in. You've learned so much from it. And I think you're not alone. I think that those, you know, earlier days – created herpetologists, zoologists, botanists, like people that like dreamed of growing up and, and doing what you do, like traveling the world, going to the Serengeti. Like that was what that publication was about. I haven't looked at it in 20 years. I can't. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a there's a show on Netflix, a, a, a series called Stranger Things. It's kind of a sci-fi thing, but it is set in the 1980s. And, you know, these kids are running around their bikes. They have all this freedom, everything. I literally can't watch it, not due to the topic of the show, the sci-fi topic, because it's painful to actually look at what life was like when I was a child and realize that children of today will probably never experience it in the United States. Like, we've, it's, it's, what you just described with Nat Geo has happened with everything. Time Magazine always used some fear porn, but they were pretty much a news magazine. Absolutely. Now it's crap. And you can take anything that existed, I'm going to say from the 80s back, that still exists today. And it's made that transition into garbage. And I think it's because like we have like six companies that own all this media now. Oh, you're absolutely right. So the consolidation of the viewpoint is the peril. And this consolidation of the, of the viewpoint has been going on for a very long time. Look, if we go back to one of those magnificent novels, Brave New World by Addis Huxley, we are given a glimpse of preconceived future reality as it was 
floating around in the rarefied atmosphere of one of Britain's most illustrious families, the Huxleys. Very few people actually know that the Huxleys, I mean, this Alice Huxley was not just taking dope and coming up with dreams about what the future is. <laughs> she was actually privy to this type of stuff. Let's, let's, let's unveil some of the mysteries of the great uh, rulers of the world. I have to point out to people that things haven't really changed since the time of Genghis Khan, but the methods and the means have changed dramatically. So in order to perceive and understand where we are in the world today, I just point out that there's this kind of island in the North Atlantic that not much more than 150 years ago had approximately 75% of the world's population bowing to its royalty. Mm-hmm. That's Great Britain. And to imagine that a little nothing island with complete respect for the beauty of Great Britain controlled or influenced or managed or governed 75% of the world's population is beyond comprehension. Not Genghis Khan, nor Hannibal, nor Alexander the Great could ever imagine an empire as great as this. And the Brits accomplished it. So one has to first ask the question, what were these people made of? Not only were they brilliant strategists, but they were brutal and devious. And that is what they maintain to this very day. So when people start asking me about why these things are going on, I say that people in power and people who had great power resent greatly having lost it. I agree. I agree. And I'll, I'll add to it. They're still using the same formula the British did. If you think about it, here's how the British did what you just described. There is no way Britain itself could control 70% of the world. So when they would go into a place... They would carve out a segment of that society and co-opt them into British culture, make them insiders, give them power, give them money, give them authority, and then multiply their force by making India police India, by making Cameroon produce uh, police Cameroon. Now, how do you get 300 million people in America masking themselves like a bunch of moronic sheep? You get... The Karens, right? The Karens are like the modern Cooley Indian uh, soldiers, right? Policing society. They're using the same formula to try to claw the power back, is what I see. Your, your, te- your, your perception, I mean, I, th- I think you're my twin, Jack, and I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, you, the thoughts come out of your mind are amazing. They're brilliant. They're skullduggery. Their scheming is extraordinary. So let's pull some of this together. So Cecil Rhodes, of which the Rhodes Scholarship, is of fame, made the observation that the only way the Brits would reacquire their former glory and power is if they could create a one-world government. Mm -hmm. This contrivance has been going on for decades. We can probably say over a 100 years. And the desire to reacquire that power is so great that they are going to do anything in their power to do so. When, so when you talk about subjugating people and including them in your fold, the divide and conquer, but really giving people presumed power, giving people presumed prestige. Think about what I just said, and the listeners, think about what I'm saying. Giving people presumed prestige is the greatest manipulative act in human psychology. 
When you can take somebody and make them feel important, when you can take somebody and give them a sense of personal uh, accomplishment, you acquire their obedience and their slavery. And this is exactly what we see from the top down in the educational systems. This is what we see in institutions. This is what we see in government bodies. This is what we see in the proliferation of government agencies and international bodies, international conferences. Just think of all of these uh, minions who attend these international conferences. And think about what is actually going on here, because this is part of the biggest joke of all. It's where we are going to showcase you. We're going to put you on the stage. We're going to take your hard-earned studies, your hard-earned and valid efforts. Let's give respect for the valid efforts that people all across the world have made in their research and their, and their drudgery to accomplish the tasks that have been set before them. Talking about scientists, talking about all that. They go to these conferences, and in a way which commercial world would never see, they give their posters, they show their research, they explain their methodology, and somebody else comes along and looks at it and says, wow, I got this for free. And in the contrivance, think about this. What they were able to do when you're talking about how they went to India and how they subjugated a certain percentage of the population and gave them the prestige of Britain and gave them the uh, titles and honoraria, they made these people feel important above their fellow citizens. And that is exactly what we see in the scientific world. That's what we see in all the, the, the systems I've mentioned. So you have all these people participating in a very, very interesting way. Now, let me pull a little story out of my bag, which is periphery, but very related to this. There was a book that was written called Plants, Man, and Life. It was written by Edgar Anderson. He was the former uh, curator and director of the Missouri Botanical Garden, Plants, Man, and Life. If you've never touched this book, it's time to pick it up because it's a simple read, but it is lucid and it was prophetic because it was written either in the late 50s or early 60s. Edgar Anderson makes the observation, I have to catch my breath, that as governments, as society, as institutions realize the importance of plants in power schemes, there would be more and more and more control on their movement and on their sharing and on their availability. If this is not what we're seeing in our present day with all the laws against transporting seeds, with all the regulations and all the things about protecting nature, let's think of for a brief moment the hypocrisy of this. In Malaysia, they go through and they strip cut primary forests that may be two, three, four hundred years old, maybe older. They've never been touched by the hand of man. On any single tree in an equatorial rainforest in Borneo, Malaysia, there may be hundreds of epiphytic plants, the majority of them being orchids. And those orchids fall down. They're stripped of those trees. The trees are cut up, sent to a mill. Some poor bastard goes to Borneo, collects a suitcase full of uh, orchids, flies back to Heathrow, and becomes the showcase of the world of natured predators. This guy has gone there and he's, pre he's predated all of these precious orchids, and he's going to pay the price. So what we've created is, again, that skullduggery, clever, devious scheming system of the Brits building on this. And I'm going to go a little bit farther to elaborate on... Uh, Edgar Anderson's observation 
The Brits have been incredibly calculative in their way of manipulating the international organizations. In 1992, there was a convenium of countries from around the world that went to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to forge what became known as the Conference on Biodiversity. And from that came a rather simplistic yet reasonable assertion that each country was responsible for its flora and its fauna, for its plants and animals. Very sensible. I mean, they're in our, within our borders. We should be responsible for them. And they went on further to say they were the property of those countries. And so they built up this little contrivance of how, you know, this is your stuff. It's very important. And that's what we see in this kind of tit for a tat because they kind of lead them up and they build up how important they are. But I'm going to show you how clever they are. So in the year 2000, uh, Kew Botanical Gardens, which is you know, among many, there's a rivalry perhaps between Edinburgh and Kew and Missouri Botanical Garden and maybe New York Botanical Garden when it comes to prestige. Kew still stands above them because it has history behind it and it has the British crown. And it turns out that they came up with a contrivance called the Millennia Project. So how did the Millennia Project work? Well, first of all, Kew is extraordinarily well funded by the government of Great Britain, by the Queen. It's also extraordinarily strategic. And let's remember one of those old adages, possession is 99% of the law. Okay, so let's go back and let me recapitulate what I've just told you. 1992, Rio de Janeiro, the conference concludes, the international conference concludes that each country is the proprietor of its plants and animals. Makes perfect sense. So now they become a little bit possessive, all these countries. They've been told by the Brits. They've been set up in this thing that that's theirs. So now they don't want to let it out to other people. They don't want to share. In fact, at one point in time, to show the um, craziness of the effect on this, the Mexicans were thinking for a time to charge the world a royalty for using corn. And this is true. And they found out, you know, it's so dispersed, it's kind of irrational, and it's not enforceable. So they kind of dropped it. But there's many plants which have not yet been, shall we say, introduced into mass cultivation. Among the more recent grand examples are the oil palm. I mean, you wouldn't be listening to Malaysia right now giving much credibility to the fact that it's Congo or Central African Republic or, say, Cameroon that should be the proprietor of the oil palm because that's where it comes from. Because, hell, they're growing millions of acres of it in Malaysia and Indonesia. Sure. So that's one of the more recent um, commercial introductions of a plant from one place to another. Now, going back to what the Brits did is very, very clever. So you make the people feel important. So now we're owning our stuff. And then what did the Brits do? They come up with a millennia project. And what were the auspices or the conceptions of this idea? Q, the botanical garden, would send teams around the world to create uh, collaborations with national universities and national research teams, and they would fund the, the machinery, the vehicles, the team. They would pay the university members. They would pay in a collaborative effort to go and collect the germplasm from the country, as many different kinds of plants and seeds as possible. And the deal was this. This is where the Brits are razor-sharp devious. 50% of the collections go to the National Gene Bank of that country. And 50% of the collections <laughs> go to Britain 
Yeah. Go to Britain for the millennial seed bank. And guess what? If a gene uh, bank has seeds, it has the genetic material. And basically, if you're a good genetic material curator, one or two seeds is all you need to propagate a plant. So the Brits, in in a in one sole swoop, were able to set the other world against itself and still take advantage of it. And this is a part of the skullduggery and the deviousness that they're so co capable of. Now, if you were to write Q and request some of that material, oh, they have it all backed up legally. They say, well, we signed a contract with the donor country because that's what they're calling. They're always setting the precipice that the person or the country is very important because yeah. that yeah. makes them you know, more agreeable. And when you feel important, and, oh, we're working with Kew Gardens. We're working with the Royal Botanical Garden, and, and, and I'm part of the representative. And eight, these people are played. They're completely played. And that's how Britain continues to do the stuff. We're doing the same thing around the world today. Do you know, referring back now to the Huxley family, that Adolf Huxley's uncle, Julian Huxley, was the first director of the British... You, uh, uh, eugenic society. Oh, Am I saying that? Um, eugenics, as in improvement of the human race. Yeah. He was, he was the first director of that, along with his good comrade, Margaret Sanger. She was a standing member. Oh, I knew Sanger. I didn't know that Huxley was. I, I do know that, like, for all the talk of the Nazis and eugenics, that there were letters written from Nazi scientists and early German scientists before the Nazi party was a thing, two members of United States Research and Scientific and Congress congratulating the United States on leading the way in eugenics because we actually passed laws about like forced, forced sterilization, etc., before Nazi Germany did. Oh, like this stuff's been going on, and it's the people you look at. And again, you 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 tell somebody that they won't believe you. You show them concrete historical proof. They still don't believe you, or they say it doesn't matter. I, I if it if it if it didn't matter, you wouldn't have denied it in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, and this all comes down to like patterns. Pattern recognition is how you see all this stuff. And it all comes down to the illusion of choice. Like you have all these countries, they think they have choice. They really don't have choice because they went ahead and they took it from all this diversity all over the world and they centralized it. And that's Absolutely. always the goal is centralization. The solution yeah. to every problem, decentralize. That's, that's the solution to every problem we have. And their answer to every problem is centralization. If you look at the way the government's run, I talked about this in one of my videos yesterday. You see a guy get selected for... Agricultural Commission in the United States, right? Like the, the, the cabinet position by a president. And you're like, well, I thought this guy was the president's different than the last president. Why is it another guy from like Cargill or Purdue or whatever? Because there's only about 12 people, no matter who's president, that's ever going to be on that list for that position. It's the same 12 people. So if you pick any one of those 12, you get the same thing. But people look at it and go, wow, of all the 330 million people in the United States, he picked him. No, he picked them one of 12, and they were all the same. And this, this pattern of illusion of choice and illusion of, illusion of diversity, it just repeats itself over and over again. It is the tool of control of society. Well, you absolutely understand that if you don't create conformity, if you don't create something to obey, you don't have power. And so to go back to the... the the discussion about the British Eugenic Society for many years lacking 
credible evidence firsthand. I was being very, um, shall I say, um, apologetic about Margaret Sanger because I knew she was for population control, but I wasn't capable of actually claiming with evidence that she was promoting population control also through abortion. And recently, I had the opportunity to sit with an extraordinary researcher who had accumulated over 18,000 primary documents relating to Margaret Sanger and their associates' work in Margaret Sanger's hand, actual primary documents that show her to be an absolutely depraved uh, proponent for abortion as a means of population control. Now, let me take Julian Huxley a step farther. In, in the early, in earlier mid-1940s, he also became, illustriously, the first director of the United Nations UNESCO. And his first intention, again, again, let's think about creating conformity, which answers many of the um, rather confusing dilemmas that we view in the modern world, like why is or why are European countries so bent on bringing uh, Muslims to Europe? Is it because they truly care so much about Muslims, or is there something more nefarious behind this? The nefarious part has its clues in Julian Huxley. So when he became director of the United Nations Education, Science, and Culture Organization, his first step was to start teaching youngsters around the world that there was a global humanity, a global humanity. It sounds sweet. It sounds kind of cozy to imagine us all hugging each other. But as I've come to grow in experience and age, I've come to respect the, not respect, I've come to absolutely thrive on our diversity. The fact that certain Africans eat with their hands uh, a plate and the fact that others use chopsticks and the fact that others use spoons or forks it enthralls me. It shows that we have different approaches to the same problem. And that is very interesting. But when we start melting it down into this globalization, which, by the way, as you realize, National Geographic expounds the virtue of globalization, of this conformity. So bringing those Muslims to Europe has nothing to do about being nice to Europeans, nice to Muslims. It has to do with diluting the traditions that be by by putting people against people by saying that your culture is conflicting with theirs. So you have to somehow reach an in-between. And that in the long run is to destroy beliefs and culture. I don't know if you know about Black Pete. You know about Black Pete? No, I have no idea what even you're talking about. I, I, unless you're, I don't think you're talking about the only thing I can come up with, which is Tierra Negra in, in South America. And I, I don't think that's what you're talking about. Okay, so Black Pete is a figure from childhood uh, okay. story tales and fairy tales in Holland. Black Pete. I mean, it's, it's something that's associated with Christmas and Black Pete is a character. Well, they started this whole thing that Black Pete uh, tradition was racist. The Black treat, uh, Pete thing was against other cultures. And so they tried to destroy the integral power of culture and tradition by claiming that you're racist. Look, I sat down with thousands of people around the world and everything from little tiny dirt huts with chicken shit all over them to fancy mansions. And the thing that I draw out of humanity after all these experiences is that 
despite the trappings, despite the, the way we dress or the way we do things, again, humans have three basic needs as I distill it. Food, water, and some type of shelter. And once we have those, then we can basically be on our way to surviving. And so when I look at humanity and I look at all these people, I don't agree with how they eat with their hands in Africa. I don't want to. But that doesn't mean that it affects me past that. It's just I don't want to do that. It's not that I'm racist, that I don't want to eat with my hands. It's not that I don't want, like when I went to Mongolia, I was apprehensive about drinking uh, fermented mare's milk. It just happens to be that after doing so, I fell in love with it and was drinking it all the time. (laughs) Many cultural attributes that I don't want to pick up in my own. I can revel in the differences of people, but this is not what the globalists want. The globalists know that the unity of tradition is an insulation against their objectives. Agreed. You know, everything's racist now. Do you know... As dumb as this has become, the thing that I heard this week that's now racist, that, that, that beyond compare to every other claim I've heard, apple pie is racist and problematic. Oh, really? Apple pie. Because it is imperialistic, and because when we, we made apple pie in America, we got our ingredients from all over the world and places we stole it from. And even being able to make an apple pie comes from a place of privilege. And apple pie should be abolished because it's racist. This is, this passes for journalism. Yeah. You know, what we have to do is we have to lament that people have so much time on their hands. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was when I was reading it. I was thinking, you know what comes from a place of privilege? Having a job that you're paid to do. Right, that lets you pass off the claim that apple pie is racist and imperialist as a job. Having the time to be paid to write this drivel, there's your place of... You could not be a more privileged human being than to be able to spout such nonsense and be adored and and fawned on and and paid to write this crap. Because this wasn't a blogger. This was like an actual publication that pays its writers to put this crap out. If that doesn't tell us just how completely detached from nature we are, I mean, there was the same story going back a few months ago about ownership of dogs. Do you remember that one? I do not. Okay, well, look it up. There was an ownership of dogs, and that was considered a racist thing because uh, owning a dog put you in a privileged position because others cannot do so. So rather than uh, get stuck in this um, this Idiot loop racism, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point is that these are all trigger mechanisms, and the the ultimate objective is to dehumanize, depersonalize, and detach us from those things which allow us to be resilient and uh, rebellious. When you're able, you know, I was giving the example last night uh, in a in a conversation at dinner of communist. Soviet Union. And I said one of the objectives of the Communist Soviet Union was to collectivize mass areas of small farms, bringing them all to one. And I tried to explain to this particular person who wasn't particularly familiar with <laughs> communism in its uh, Soviet form what that meant. And I told about the rebellious resilience of those few 
peasants who were able to have their chicken or the cow or their little patch of vegetables because they weren't at the women fancy of the distributors of the communist bloc. They were actually able to produce their own food. And that kind of independence is to be feared and to be feared dramatically by the people who expound this. Now, we go back to that illustrious example of Edis Huxley about the for those who have read this. Think about the savage, the savage. And there's much to talk about with savages because savages are long revered in Western literature. In fact, one of the subjects I have been studying over the last few years is the concept of the noble savage. We see this now in various and sundry forms as a mysticism, uh, much of the new age phenomena. And strangely enough, we find strange bedfellows when it comes to diversity issues like what do Native Americans necessarily have to do with uh, people who want to have relationships with animals, uh, the bestiality promoters? What do Native Americans have to do with LGBTQ uh, community in, in a general sense? These are all things they've amalgamized into the marginalized and suffering people of the world in order to create these diversionary scenarios. And the reason that's important to realize is that their true goal is to keep your mind off the things and keep you from thinking about things that really are solution-oriented. And I think coming back to our true goal, the savage in the brave new world was actually thinking for himself. If you recall, he was out in this hinterland and he had one thing which was still an extent in the land of the savages. This is in the brave new world. He had boxes of books, actual physical books that he could read and that he could evaluate and he could question. And in that era, the era which was portrayed in Addis Huxley's Brave New World, people were now at a robotic, robotic state. I mean, do you know that roughly 30% of American high school students are under some form of pharmaceutical, whether as an antidepressant or as an anti-anxiety drug? Yeah. 30%. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and most of them, the drugs that they're on, the, the equivalent street drug is methamphetamine. It's speed. It, it, it's it's one of the worst drugs to put somebody on. Just because you give them a smaller dose doesn't mean you're not actually dosing our children with, to be blunt, fucking meth, right? Absolutely. And like, and and I, I just see that number continuing to rise because. What it becomes is, to the parent, it's a solution. Your child is a problem, and if we give them meth, they'll cease being a problem. Not your, not your child will be healthier, happier, smarter. They will better conform to the system of control that we wish them to control with, and then we won't bother you anymore. Absolutely. And, and you know, so comparing it to Brave New World, we're there. We're, we're there. We're past there. Holy shit. We, we are past there. I mean, to go into industry after industry and see how they've savagely coerced people to wear a face mask for eight hours a day. I mean, look, I pointed out, I, I consider myself to have good dental hygiene. I dental floss, I brush my teeth. I do uh, bacterial pulls with coconut oil. But nevertheless, I wouldn't want to have a mask on for 20 minutes, let alone Eight hours. I mean, your breath is the purveyor of all the things that your lungs exhale. And here you've trapped them. It's just, it's just 
unbelievable that people fall for this type of stuff. It, it, it stuns me. And so, well, it, it goes back to mind control because all of this control is, is one way or another ends up being a form of mind control. Because if you think about the concept of, you know, a fraction of 1%, let's say a half a percent, right? So if you have a half a percent of, of people, that's a, a, a half a person per hundred. So, you know, if you have a thousand people, you have five people controlling a thousand people. It's that cannot be done any way other than mind control. Five people cannot control, you know, 995 people physically. I don't care what you do. You can give those five people guns and not give the 995 people guns, and you know what will happen if those 995 truly wish to be free. They will tear those people physically apart. So the only way you and, and it's less than half a percent, let's be honest, of the people truly controlling society. The only way you can control that many people is, one, like I said, you have your false force multiplication. You create these little hierarchies, these little places, and you give the slaves shinier chains to, to control the other slaves. But your mass control technique is mind control. You can't get 330 million people to put masks on when they're taking a walk in a freaking park outside away from everybody without mind control. You can't do it. You have to control the mind. And my only Real hope for society came from this was as bad as it was. I'm encouraged by how many people said, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not participating in your delusion. And it's, it's as small as the number is, it's bigger than I expected. Well, you're absolutely right. And I mean, this fact of a small population controlling a large population is not a new observation. No. If you've read uh, the work of Etienne de Laboitier, who was a Well, he was he was a precocious genius who was born around uh, the the first two or three decades of 1500s. He wrote a book on on this very subject, the, the subject of how such a it, it was. I believe it's called a discourse on voluntary serfdom. And uh, he asked the question, how does a mass of people allow itself to be controlled by a few? Because, like you say, they don't have the physical abilities to prevent rebellion, so they do it psychologically. And this is something which is astonishing. It's just absolutely astonishing that people fall in line like this. But what are the, the number one factors that uh, prevail? The creation of fear and the creation of a fear of um, re that you're going to have uh, some type of repercussions for your rebellious behavior. And it's all psychological control. And it's also that you won't fit in. That you that, that, that the mob will turn on you. Like I think we personally, I think we evolved to have some level of conformity within small groups. It Beca makes sense because yeah, because if we're all like out in the plains together and there's a lion out there, and I'm a dick to the other 12 people with me, and we're, we're armed with sharp sticks because this is you know 80,000 years ago, you guys are going to be like, you're a dick. We don't want you, and I'm going to be on my own against the lion versus having the tribe to help me. You're well, going to come back to the camp and you're going to do a little bit of conforming to be a part of the team that pr protects you. So that makes, th these are instincts that make absolute sense. I stop at red lights because it makes sense. Correct. That makes sense. But I'm not going to be told what to do just because somebody pretends to have the authority over me to tell me to do it. But what And I'm saying is, is, since this is an innate trait in humanity, 
once you understand it and you, you put pressure on it, so like with martial arts, there's certain pressure points in your body that I can literally make your body do a thing against your will if I apply proper pressure in the right way on it. I can make you bend over. Like, I can make you almost feel like it's your idea to bend over. It, it requires a lot of precision, but it can be done. When you get the elite, and they just they don't worry about you and me initially. They We're the mole that you whack down later on. You apply that pressure, and you let the law of averages take over, and then you get the vast majority in compliance, and then you set the majority on the minority, and you claim everybody's free. This is, like you said, this is nothing new. It's just now... Like, the promise of the Internet and digital communication was a beautiful promise that was never fully realized, and that was what we're doing right now. You and I are able to independently, with no gatekeeper, when we're done with this and I wrap up everything in the editing and put this out today, over the next about 48 hours, about a quarter million people all over the world are going to hear two people speak their truth their way with no interference. And that's the beauty of this. The problem is when the corporations that, that are so small in number working in concert with the banks and the governments control the vast majority of it anyway, and somebody says, hey, listen to these two guys, and a person who would be a great ally says, oh, no, no, they're crazy, with no idea what we're even talking about. Can't even, it would probably take them, so there's people out there, and I don't mean to be egotistical or anything, but there are people out there to even understand what you and I are talking about would require, forget the deprogramming, a year of education to understand what the hell we're talking about. Oh, you better believe it. So, I mean, if we go back uh, to some of the questions that you had for me, some of this will unfold because some of the greatest challenges to mankind, I write, are the simplest to fix. And that sounds to the... Uh, institutionalized mind, it sounds discombobulating. Like, they wouldn't be big problems if they were simple to fix. But there's an answer to why they don't fix them. There's they don't want them fixed. The problem is the pressure point. The problem, when I talked about like a pressure point where I can actually push a point behind your elbow and make you bend at the waist without putting any pressure on your upper body, that's the problem. And if I take the problem away, I don't have control anymore. Well, and, and, and not only is it this aspect of control, I mean, I guess it extends into that in, in a natural uh, distillation, but they don't have the wherewithal to support their complicated systems and infrastructures and institutions. It's much more, um, shall we say, assuring to those who believe they're important if the problem is so complicated that they have to do endless studies, research, grant applications in order to show how complicated the problem is to solve. One of the things that I've noticed all over the world is a lack of nurseries. I'm talking about simple plant nurseries. I don't see um, if we're if we're vesting governments to solve these problems the most obvious solution to many of the things, even for the believers in climate change and the believers that humans are destroying the planet, is multiplicatively advance the propagation of plants. Now, why does the human-plant symbiotic uh, relationship prove itself to be so productive? Well, the secret is simple. Plants are super proliferative. Flowering plants produce thousands if not millions of seeds not because they if each seed grew they would need thousands or millions but for the very fact that 
only a very few seeds in nature arrive to maturity to reproduce. So plants are superfluous in their productivity, which gives us the opportunities that humans depend upon for our very existence. We plant a bean seed, we plant a mustard seed, and the plant that grows from it does a hundredfold, in some cases a thousandfold what the original seed was. So when we look at nature and we think that man is actually destructive, we aren't truly uh, perceiving our opportunities because we can take the same 10,000 seeds that a tree produced and in an artificial yet natural environment, because we're putting seeds into soil, we can tend those seeds and maybe produce 9,000 new trees. Whereas in nature, if they just fell on the ground, maybe only one or two or three would make it to maturity. So man has a way of relating symbiotically with nature and then that gives logical credibility to the need for us to do simple things. Build nurseries, create plants, plant trees. And we talk about it, but nobody ever takes it seriously because it's quite simple, too far below the modern academic who sits in his glorified ivory tower and uh, proselytizes on the dangers of climate change and sure. dangers of fires and over. I mean, humans aren't going to destroy. Let me let me uh, expound upon another perspective because I recently was sitting in a hotel lobby and it came on National Geographic showing plastics, plastics all over. Now, by no means am I an aficionado of garbage plastic. That's not what I'm going to claim here. For years, I was quite despondent about garbage laying on the side of the road. But then it occurred to me, Jack, in a most salient way, that this garbage is ineffectual to nature. Because, I mean, if a piece of plastic falls on a desert, it actually could serve as a nurse shade for a new seed to grow. So garbage, despite its its disappealed to some of us who have been educated to not appreciate garbage because the great majority of mankind happens to be pretty oblivious to it. If you go to Calcutta, India, or you go to Haiti, or you, you're all over Central and South America, or some places in Africa where there are garbage, because in many places they don't even have the means to have the commercial garbage to accumulate, you see that people are wallowing and use plastic bags and use bottles, and they don't pay much attention to it. It's only some of us who have been tuned in to the ugliness of it who lament it. And somehow we've contrived that it's dangerous to nature. Well, okay, let's give credibility to the porpoise or the seal that's eating plastic bags. Sure. But for the great majority of nature, these are inanimate objects no different than a rock. So it doesn't matter if there's an effing pile of plastic bottles to nature or a pile of rocks to nature. They're both inanimate objects. Now, here's so, an example, right? So have you ever, like, been at, like, an old farm or something, and, and, and it kind of went into disrepair? And you come upon this place, and there's a clump of grass growing. And there's natural, even if you don't have cattle on it anymore, there's deer and whatever. So there's a natural grazing of the grass, and there's this big, tall clump of grass there, and then you, you dig through it and you find there's a pile of uh, metal, maybe there's a piece of fencing that got laid on the ground and nobody ever took care of it, stuff started growing up through it, and it protected it. And if that stays there, and you come back in 15 years, 
that that metal fencing will be rusted and gone by and large. And yes, I'm not. You and I are not advocating throwing garbage around. We're just observing a natural fact. That metal will be largely gone, and there'll be a forest where there was a field. And if you were to like have an overhead picture of that piece of like say 50 acres, every six months for those 15 years. Much like a, a, a research a, a scientist who like studies arson would say, this is the place the fire started. You see what I'm saying? Would exactly. you, you'd be able to go, this is the place or one of the or origin places the forest began. Okay, and, so you, you're very correct in what you're pointing out here. And again, we have an aesthetic philosophical issue, which correct. is the the foment or the it is the basis for making people feel bad about what humans are doing to the world. But there's also the physical reality aspect, which we're talking about here, that these pieces of garbage and all this stuff that we're seeing to nature doesn't mean very much. It's just a part of inanimate reality. And it could act as reciprocals, uh, uh, receptacles for water. It could act as shade material. And that's why you see these piles of garbage, you know, forming. Think about the garbage they dump into the oceans, how uh, it becomes a surface area for everything from barnacles to algae yeah. to new, new coral reefs. Well, if, so if you go fishing off the coast of Texas and you want to go like way offshore, one of the places that you're likely to end up in your boat with your captain looking for this diversity of fish to, to acquire is going to be right alongside an oil rig. Yeah, because you're going to find a lot of... Red snapper, mahi, and cobia, they all relate to these structures that we see as an abomination, and they literally are the structure that bring fish to them because they create an edge, and an edge is where all diversity is. Did you ever know or get to meet or were aware of uh, Toby Hemingway? Out of the permaculture world? No. He's, I, I know of Toby Hemingway, yes, but I never met him. Met him. He was he was a great guy. I spent quite a bit of time with him at the Permaculture Voices conferences. And one day I just happened to wake up, and he was a real visionary guy. And I, I woke up that morning, and I turned the TV on as I was getting ready to go down and, and meet people and all. And there was this documentary on, and it was about these abandoned buildings in Chicago. And they'd been abandoned for about 20 years. And they had trees growing on the roof and trees growing through them. And they were showing how the trees were literally eating the concrete and turning these concrete and steel buildings back into forests in freaking Chicago. Or it was either Chicago or Detroit. So I tell Toby this, and he gets this glint in his eye. It looks like freaking Santa Claus, this little eye glint, you know. And he goes, see, it won't take long. Absolutely. And, and I'm exactly with you. I mean, here we are in, in Europe right now. There's a mandate in Austria that 25% of the commercial buildings built have to have living roofs. And I was kind of laughing because I'd gone to post Ceausescu, Romania a few years, years back. And all of these, you know, uh, things that were built under Ceausescu, these factories, they had fallen into ruins. And on their roofs were trees growing and things were sprouting up in the cracks. And it was like being dismantled before your eyes. But by nature. Yep. And so we don't have the opportunity, nor the reason, nor the logic to claim that humans can destroy the earth. So this fear factor that we're instilling in our children, this propaganda that we're giving, serves only a few elite to further consolidate and fear monger us 
into some type of conformity to obey in a essence in a way that is really destroying the future of humanity. So if, if you go back to a couple of your questions, again, those institutions that are looking for complicated solutions are incapable and in their conjunction with the media, in the conjunction of the financial resources of the planet, their very existence depends upon our demise. Their very existence depends upon these problems because they have to pretend to have some future vision light at the end of the tunnel to solve things which are, as I claim, extraordinarily simple. You wouldn't want to make yourself obsolete as an academic or as an organization if you actually could effing solve the problem. Absolutely. And so my rule is that whatever they say, you immediately flip it around to the opposite and there's your solution. But then the challenge is, well, how does that solution work? So, for instance, basically the message is human beings as a species are destructive. And the things that we do in human activities are terrible and the things that we build are bad. So if you flip that all around, human beings are incredibly productive and abundant. Working in concert with nature, we can actually make the world a better place and improve ecology, even with our structures and our things that people say are bad. So then, okay, that's that's the opposite. Well, how does that happen? Little, tiny things. So you think of a neighborhood and the way a neighborhood's laid out in all these streets and houses, and then you build it in a desert. Now this seems even worse, right? Because then you've got a heat island effect, you've got the roads taking all the water away, you're creating erosion, people have lawns. But if you've ever heard of the word of Brad Lancaster in, in Arizona, in a place just like that, in a denuded neighborhood, the main, there's a lot of little things they did additionally, but the main thing they did, against the law, by the way, being complete anarchists, they took concrete saws They cut holes in the curbs and they diverted the water from the street into like the nature strip between like the sidewalk and the road and they planted trees and they mulched them. That was the primary thing they did. They transformed an entire neighborhood into a, a thriving natural ecosystem with breaking the law and a concrete saw. So that, that, if you actually wanted to fix problems, Well, then you would say, look, this is a solution. We should do this everywhere. And to be fair, it's, I think it's Tucson is where he lives. They actually say the mandate thing is what made me think about it. And you're talking about the mandates in, in, uh, in Austria or whatever. They're now saying if you have a new neighborhood that you're putting in, a new subdivision, you have to basically catch a certain amount of water into the land using these techniques. Okay, dumbasses, what about you? You, you, live, you have a city of a million people. What about all the people that are already there? And, and literally you could take one concrete saw and send out a crew every day to do a street, and in two years you could transform the entire city, but you don't give a shit. You're, you're, it's more important that you make people hate themselves. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the natural, what is the natural conclusion of the message we're giving? Well, the best thing you could do if you really love the earth is kill yourself. That's literally what the message is. Well, and, and that's where the population extravaganza really takes its insidious nature. Now, I, I mentioned uh, in, in many references uh, the psychopaths who are part of the global elite. And, and people don't believe me. A lot of people don't believe me. Let me point out the Havardians. The Havardians, you know, all these great scholars from Harvard, they just have this prestige of this institution behind them. And one of them that comes to mind because I was gifted the book a couple of years back is E.O. Wilson. I mean, he's a, he's an entomologist. 
He's, you know, uh, you could probably call him a population geneticist. I mean, he's written some very interesting books. One of his books he wrote was called Half Earth. Have you heard of it? I have not heard of that, no. Okay, so this is going to be one on your reading list. So Half Earth goes into this long expository about humans. Say, say, is that, did you say Half Earth? Half Earth, as in half of the Earth. Okay, okay, I'm writing that down so we make sure we get it in the show notes. E.O. E. Wilson. So he writes this book. And he goes to, he goes into details about how we need to have nature corridors, how we need to protect nature, all by the way, which is happening under the United Nations as they intrude into national, uh, sovereignty. So he suggests that one half of the earth should be set aside in strict nature reserves. Now you're listening to me. Yeah. Half of the earth. And he's actually expounding on this, although he doesn't go into gory details, saying that The human population should be moved off of this. So when you read it, it sounds kind of bucolic because he's quite uh, uh, he's quite affable with the pen. But it turns out that this is the effing psychopath. This is, I mean, you know, what what allows you, you dirty bastard, to think that you are going to expound that half of the world's population has to be moved off of their terra firma? What tells you in your insight that you have the opportunity to do this? These people, I'm claiming, are psychopaths. And the reasons they're psychopaths is they back it up with this, this kind of uh, ephemeral concept of benevolence to Gaia. They're going to protect nature, mm. and humans have to do it. This is all nonsense. This is extraordinary nonsense because you know where the greatest Gaia exists? You and I is permaculture. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Doesn't this just go back to where we started? The the way that you convince people that we need to be removed for nature to do well is convince people we're not nature. How am I any less nature than the blue heron that I just saw fly across my property? How am I any less nature than the rat snakes that go in my duck coop and eat my duck eggs. How am I any less nature than my duck? How am I any less nature than the fish that I catch on the beach? I was born here too. I evolved here too. I am part of this place. And it is, it is, that's why they create the separation to convince you that you don't believe. It's almost like they, what, what they infer is that human beings are an invasive species on the planet as if there was earth and there was no humanity. And we were dropped off by, like, the Pleiadians or some shit, and we don't belong here. They're coming from outer space. They're entering as aliens into this biosphere, and we're coming as destructive aliens who are tearing the shit. You know, there there's some things that happen to you in life that stand out memor memorably. And when I was a child and I'd go to uh, Ash Wednesday, one of the things we were told, from dust you came to dust you will return. And this very simple reality shows us our nature, shows us that we're neither adding to the density of the earth nor taking from it because we are of the earth. And hence, much of this nonsense is to try to distract us to believe, as you say, that we're invasive. Now, among many other uh, issues is the fact that people do not have the relevant information to ask the relevant questions to come up with the proper answers. So even though we live in an age of you know, mass communication and the technological era would give us the blissful claim that we have access to more information than ever, which is true, 
but it at least requires you to be able to ask the question to access that information. So if you don't have access to the question, how are you to come up with the answer? And that's where keeping you in the dark is the best way with with pap and mush generalities that confuse you. Well, and they do. We do actually do damage. I'm I'm convinced, but it's primarily because we don't live in a natural state. So, like, if I was a rancher and I was like, "Hey, Joseph, can you come take a look at my pasture? I think it's really in bad shape, and I I don't know how to fix it." And I had ten acres, and I had a thousand head of cattle on it, and I had no controls over them, no rotational plan or anything. And that's too many anyway. You you would say, Jack, you either need to get more land or less cows, right? Because a cow. Right, a cow is basically an analog to like a bison or another bovine species, and they don't naturally live that way. Well, I contend that humans do not naturally live in hundred-story high-rises in Manhattan. But that is not a natural state of humanity, and that human can't do the, its human work as part of a natural system in that state. You can't do the thing that that human was meant to do. But if you put a human being into even a small plot of land, they start landscaping, right? Like, like even if they're so disconnected, they put in like box elders and shit, they still, they immediately begin to, to, to practice horticulture. This is, so if you take the human and you take away the horticulture and the animal husbandry from them by environment, by nature, they are now taking more than they're giving, not because they're evil, But it's like putting a, a wild cat in a cage. The wild cat is supposed to hunt. You put it in a cage, it can't hunt. Even if you feed it, you know, like you're some cruel bastard and you get off on watching antelopes get killed, you drop one in the cage once a week. It's not hunting. It's not doing its job. It's not causing that herd to move in a way that's natural in its environment. And that's how they've actually made the asset that is humanity into a destructive force in some ways. I agree they over-exaggerate it, but... That's how they can point to these examples and go, look how bad this is. You're a horrible being. You, there's too many of you. We need to get rid of you. Notice they never want to get rid of themselves, right? No, it's always it's us not. that need to be reduced, not them. It's it's absolutely the case. And, I mean, I take note of Jane Fonda because I had a very good friend <sighs> who went to uh, the World uh, Conference on Population in Cairo uh, a few decades back. And Jane Fonda strolled in there with all her elite, uh, gorgeous young women uh, as her entourage. Uh, you know, to all these second and third world countries that were at that point in time, you know, uh, more or less basket cases. And the example that we've created has given fuel to the fact that there's too many people and they're like a bunch of rats and they have to be eliminated. So E.O. Wilson in addressing half earth is truly a part of this mindset. I mean, yeah. he's yeah. a psychopath to to make this claim that they have to be removed from the land so we can give it back to nature because we know, you and I, that we can be constructive as much as earthworms can be to the earth. Humans can be more because we have the objective reality of creativity and intellect that allows us to transform in a natural way our relationship to the earth. Now, talking about urbanization and the urban dilemma, there's a couple things that have influenced me. There's a book called Crabgrass Frontier, okay. uh, which was written by uh, Kenneth Jackson. And Crabgrass Frontier uh, talks about the urbanization of the United States, of the creation of the suburb, uh, suburbs, a way of fleeing from the 
the cities, the industrialized cities of, you know, the earlier part of the last century and going to the greener pastures of nature, but still having the conveniences of the city and the natural world. So it turns out that we've created all of these abominations, sometimes uh, in ways that have been uh, well-intended. Uh, perhaps they were megalomaniacs who were, you know, business magnets who created so many of these large suburban uh, areas and it became a development and economic incentive for these big uh, developers to do so. But at the root of it, there may have been, you know, something admirable to want to go back to the country. The fact is it didn't have very much, um, shall we say, inspiration. And when I was in southern Taiwan a few years ago, I was lamenting the urbanization of, of southern Taiwan and it came to me that our own prowess to relate to nature could be effectively positive even in, 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 in uh, these type of developments. Uh, let me ask you something, Jack. Are you hearing a lot of patter? Because it's raining like crazy and I have a metal roof here. No, you're good. You're good. You don't okay. have a bad background. You're good. Okay. So I came up with the idea that when we construct edifices, buildings on soil, we actually have the potential to multiply the surface area of the earth. Because, I mean, if you take a 10 by 10 area that's a square and you build a, a cubic building on it, you've actually increased that by 400 units, the surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. So if we were to plant those, we actually have more potential than ever. And so this is where I believe that technology, so I'm not a Luddite, I'm not against technologies, but I am one to incorporate technologies that make sense, and I'm one to ignore those which don't make sense. An example of one that doesn't make sense, perhaps I mentioned in our last interview, Saudi Arabia was convinced by either the University of Texas or the University of Arizona that they could become wheat self-sufficient. So they invested like $12 billion into wells and irrigation technology to, to plant wheat in the highlands of Saudi Arabia yeah. before they realized it was BF ridiculous. So an example for me of a ridiculous technological application as opposed to one that's relevant. So, yes, let's use technology where it makes sense, but let's use simplicity where it makes sense. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And um, I want to get back to some of the stuff we had sitting down here um, for this interview. Let's talk about something you talk about often called the relevance of diversity. How does that apply when you claim like human tradition and relationship between man and nature, you claim that by diversity we protect ourselves from our own downfall. And that's, that's totally different than the way that the media and the elites talk about diversity. Can you kind of elaborate on how diversity actually insulates us? Okay, first of all, let's, let's uh, disuse the alarmist claims. The yeah. alarmist claims, at least when it comes to biodiversity, is that we are destroying our traditions. So if you and I apply a little bit of logic to those traditions, we realize that corn started from something more primitive, perhaps not as worked genetically. Beans started from something maybe much more primitive and not worked so genetically. But over a period of time, we were able to create the diversity of beans that existed, say, a 100 years ago, because we've lost a lot of them from simple disuse. The point that I would like to bring to the table about this is that genetic resource that we still have 
because it's not much different than the small genetic resource of the wild past, is enough to fuel an entire new, shall we say, surge in diversity. If we were to take, and this is where I claim that institutionalization is not so important, and I'm going to get to your question in just a second. Um, there are people who are passionate about things. I mentioned Luther Burbank in the last interview, how he was you know, maybe an eighth grade education, but had created and selected and discerned hundreds of varieties of horticultural plants, many which still are predominant in commercial use today, like the Burbank uh, plum or the, um, or the um, russet potato, which he was to notice and put into uh, propagation and to cultivation. So humans have the ability to relate to nature and to use nature and their selection and creation of diversity. That's how we got to where we are, and that's why, at a certain point, we're discussing losing that. When we talk about plant diversity for the future of mankind, there's two kinds. There's the present domestic diversity, which includes all the land races, all the varieties, all the seeds that are planted by the forgotten peoples of the world who are in the little valleys in uh, Shenandoah Valley or who are down in the Andes or who are in some, you know, uh, fjord in Norway still planting something that their relatives planted hundreds of years ago. So that's one type of diversity. The other type of diversity is the diversity of plants that we have to our opportunity to produce food and nutrition. And these number, as I pointed out in the last interview, in the thousands. I myself have eaten about 10,000 different plants. So when we talk about environments, we realize there's a lot of different environments. There's everything from polar, Arctic, to hot, humid, tropical, to hot deserts, cold deserts. It's all diversity. And in each of these environments, something different lives. So when I point to people that there's opportunities that are untouched, I say that these plants, both the domesticated and the undomesticated, have the ability to adapt to different climates, which means, first of all, we have a much larger selection than we presume. I mean, just to give you some simple statistics, uh, again, 10 or 12 food plants produce 80, 90, 95% of the world's carbohydrates. Only 10 or 12. Why are we using only 10 or 12? So if we use diversity, we back up another problem, and that is the chagrin of industrialized agriculture, the blights, the diseases, the plagues that affect monoculture crops. Because what happens, think about uh, the potato clone that was used in uh, Ireland that all succumbed because they were genetically identical to the, the plague which affected the potatoes in Ireland and caused the great potato famine. So when we have different diversity, we have different resiliences. And that means if you have a crop system which has 100 different varieties or 200 different varieties, you are going to find that some plants will thrive irrepressibly and that others will start out struggling. What I do when I plant a huge uh, diversity of plants is I look for the ones that are incredible, strong and resilient. And I pull out the ones that are virus ridden or I pull out the ones that are being attacked by pests, which basically brings me to the point that I don't have to worry about it. And I just plant it. And I have right now in several areas in Central America, we have seven different ecological zones, which we have 
approximately three or four thousand different varieties of uh, domesticated plants being grown right right at this moment. Yeah, I, I think that there is a tremendous strength in that. And it again, I'm back to centralization is attempting to take it away and control society. And it's it's like a cancer. It's like a cancer of humanity, this desire for control. And we're constantly, you know, we were talking earlier about how humans are uh, made out to be some sort of cancer on the planet. The cancerous humans are the ones that seek to control other humans. There, there were 99% of our problems come from. Um, and our solutions seem to be decentralization and nature in of itself. Well, E.F. E. E. Shoemaker had that book which was called Small is Beautiful. And that is the clue. Back off, unplug yourself as much as possible because you're not going to be able to do it completely. There's a lot of things which you're, you and I and everyone is – uh, intrinsically dependent upon, we're dependent on this means of communication. So we can't not necessarily disconnect from Skype because neither you nor I would be able to communicate. But you can disconnect yourself from a lot of things. I don't watch television. When I do see a glimpse of television, it's in a hotel or restaurant lobby, and it usually makes me angry within the first two or three minutes because <laughs> it's so preposterous what is being expounded on the general population. So you can disconnect. But then if you are sitting somewhere... What you have just resoundingly clarified is that small acts have grand proportional effects, at least on our own personal lives. So if you're living in a house and you're paying rent or you're paying a mortgage and you have a, a, a grass lawn, go out and dig every single bit of the grass off or just a little bit to keep the mud from splashing on the sidewalk and put it to a garden. If you don't know how to plant a garden, start learning. There's plenty of ways to plant a garden. Simple, tiny things are going to give you freedoms that you never imagined. And, you know, uh, it was it was astonishing to me, talking about the urbanites, how many kids don't know where a carrot comes from or how many kids <laughs> don't know don't know where a tomato comes from. No idea. And we can't we can't really mock them because their only experience with a tomato has been in the grocery store or maybe on their hamburger at McDonald's. Yeah, it's a French fry is a vegetable in the mind of these children, and it's not their fault. Like anybody that will mock the young generations, and I'm I'm getting now past the grade school and all to like you know early twenties or whatever, they don't know. Well, okay, you're the generation that gave the tax dollars to the people that failed to teach them, and you let it happen, right? Well, like you didn't teach them either, and you can't you can't hold against a person what they don't know. Right, you can't do that because that I can't hold against you what you don't know. You can't hold against me what I don't know. I don't know how to build the space shuttle, right? Because I'm not supposed to. It's not interesting to me. Why don't you know? You're exactly right. And and what this brings us to is an entire new dilemma, which is part of the puzzle: is the education system and the miasma which has been. Uh, you know, purported for years that it needs more money, that we need this and this to fix. No, it's we stopped educating as early as 1890 in the United States of America. It became painfully evident that if we had a thinking, logical society, that we wouldn't be able to rule them and we wouldn't have the mules in the boroughs to do the type of work that we wanted them to do. And so education is intrinsically built to create robots. And for anyone who wants to uh, argue with that, 
with me. I have a website and you're absolutely free to go there because I'll, I'll involve and relate to these kind of arguments. Education systems, as we know, in a public way around the world are for the most part disastrous against creativity. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're, they're not, schools are not schools. They're not for education. They're for programming and training. And I think it's really important that we understand, and I talk about this a lot, that there's between training and teaching. If I'm teaching you, I'm imparting knowledge on you, and I'm also imparting the wisdom to go along with that knowledge so that you can continue your learning after I'm gone. I'm not giving you therapy that you have to keep coming back to me. I'm empowering you, right? If I'm training you, I'm conditioning a response in you. And those are very different. I can train a bonsai as a tree, and it's trained. I can train a tree. I can train a dog. I can train train a fucking slime mold, right? There's no intellectual component to a slime mold, but I can train it. And that's what our school systems do versus teaching. Teaching is 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 my life's work. I, I There's no time that I feel like I'm more serving my purpose to humanity than when I'm teaching. I don't train. I teach because training is inherently limited and makes you dependent upon your trainer Teaching empowers you to no longer need your teacher. So you must love uh, the late John Gatto and Weapons of Mass Instruction. Yeah, absolutely. And and the Leibniz Connection. Absolutely, absolutely. How does this relate to something I've got in your notes here? Um, You call it public intellectualism. What do you mean by public intellectualism uh, or public intellectuals? What What do you mean when you say that? What do you suggest is our kind of way out of this mess? Okay, the simplest thing is to take, again, accountability for our own intellectual formation, not to defer to experts. I mean, look, again, in certain aspects of reality, I will defer to a surgeon who can sew my finger back on if I cut it off. Damn straight. I'm not necessarily going to go to a doctor and listen to a guy who's in terrible shape or a woman who's in terrible shape tell me how to be in shape because I don't see that they know how to be in shape. I understand there are reasons and very valid reasons for people to be certified and documented in their educational pursuit, be it a surgeon who is doing that repair on my finger, be it a pilot who is flying a plane or being an engineer who's building, you know, a bridge. bridges, yeah. human life's at stake. But I don't see why it's imperative that a political scientist go to a university to document their intelligence. I don't see why a biologist or botanist necessarily has to do so either, because there's plenty of realms of creativity outside of uh, leading the drudgery of a doctorate degree and, and bowing to uh, and deferring to your professorship so you can create a dissertation that's unique on bat, uh, bat urine. I mean, the point is, there's too much nonsense in this world and people have to go away from it. I'm not interested in bowing or towing the line to prove my academic credentials to anyone. If during my talk, or during my interlocution with people, I'm unable to demonstrate my intellect, intellectual cap- capabilities. That's my problem. That's not going to be blamed on an institution. And the public intellectual is always in pursuit of knowledge for the sake of knowledge and what that allows the mind to create. And we need to take this back because we defer all the time to so-called experts in this world because we've been kind of taught to believe this. 
It's complete nonsense. I don't even need a medical expert to tell me how to deal with a pandemic because there's certain things which are evident. If I see someone coughing or I see somebody who is ill, it's it's intrinsic in my education from my parents that I don't go hug a person who's like coughing or has a fever. Yeah. That's something I do. But I don't need to be told how fearful I have to be of something because, you know, I would have never gone to two countries, let alone 140, if I was so fearful about things. Fear itself is the biggest thing to fear. You know, I tell you what's worse than the belief in this false intellectualism and this false expertise where the person goes, oh, that guy's a political scientist. I mean, I need to listen to him. What's even more dangerous is the self-delusion. The belief in your own credential, the belief that because you went to an institution and because they gave you a diploma and they gave you initials after your name, that you're an authority on a thing you've never actually done. Uh, when you were talking about like a botanist and, and your own work with that and how you become a botanist by going out and like working with plants, which is and actually understanding plants and their intrinsic relationships versus somebody that studied in school but never did the field work. It made me think of one of my heroes growing up was a gentleman named Carl Caulfield. And this guy was a herpetologist, though he never attended a university. He became, in the early 1900s, the curator of the Staten Island Zoo. He put together the most extensive collection of North American snakes, the first ever collection of every rattlesnake species in North America. He had this amazing curated you know, herpetology wing of the Staten Island Zoo, And to think, and I read a book that he published in 1935 called The Keeper and the Kept. And I'm like a fanatic about reptiles. I have studied everything I can get on reptiles and amphibians. It's, it's, I'm like an amateur herpetologist myself. I love the subject. I have never learned more about the collection and the techniques and the husbandry of these animals than I learned from reading that book that was published in 1935 by a guy whose only credential was he just went out and lived in the space and learned. Exactly. And, and that, to me, I, I'm so glad I read that book. I found it like it was this old, I, I went to school in the 80s, so it was like 50 years old when I found it, right, like in, in the library. And I read that book, and it made an impact on me to where, like, I don't ever want to be part of this establishment because this guy could have never – I don't think he could have done what he did with a Ph.D. in, in, in herpetology. I don't think it could have happened. I, if I was institutionalized, and I say this with all due respect to friends of mine and, and colleagues and people who are institutionalized all over the world, I would never have been able to accomplish a single thing that I have done because of the obstructions, the bureaucracies, the limitations, the, the psyches that are imposed upon people who are within institutions. I sat down with a, a friend of mine. His name is Dr. Andreas Graner at the Gottesleben Institute for Plant Genetics in Germany. And he was recanting to me the type of situations that have arrived after post-1992, the Biodiversity uh, Conference in Rio de Janeiro. He said, Joey, he said, we have sessions here from the 1940s from Ethiopia of TEF. Ergorastris Tef, the great grain of, of the Ethiopian plateau. And he said, we wanted to do uh, genetic studies on it, but in order to be within the confines of international diplomacy, by the way, who the F made these type of things and who is <laughs> this kind of shit together? Uh, he said, we wrote a letter to the Ethiopian um, agricultural department to ask their permission 
because after all, it originated in Ethiopia. Not to mention that, you know, the damn Ethiopians are eating tons of stuff from all over the world, including potatoes and carrots and Brussels sprouts and broccoli that grow in their highlands. They're not asking questions that they can breathe and select those. So here we have politically correct German uh, institutionalized super academic, Andreas Gruner, writing a letter and getting refused, saying, you know, we would prefer you don't do research on that because it's very important to Ethiopian heritage. I mean, like, what the hell is this kind of stuff? I mean, I, I talked to people. There was a guy by the name of Dr. Um, his name is Enrique Chujoy. And Enrique Chujoy was the curator and the director of the International Potato Institute. Uh, this is down in Lima, Peru. And he was curating not only potato germplasms, but also the so-called rainbow tubers of the Andes. This includes Ulucus tuberosa, which is a really beautiful, beautiful tuber that's grown in the high Andes. And it's, it's an incredible, incredible tuber. He was also curating Tropelium tuberosum, which is known as Mashua. And he was curating, uh, uh, several other Andean tubers, which were very important, including, um, Oka, which is, uh, Oxalis tuberosa. So in asking about this, he pointed out that even though it was funded by the United Nations, even though the germ collection was, you know, supported by all these beneficiary countries who were donating money from their national governments. If a person in another country outside the Andean Pact was to request one of these Andean tubers, they would not share it with them because it was the proprietary genetic property of the Andean community. So there would be researchers studying this in Colorado and they would lament to me how bureaucratic it was to get permission from the Andean pack to do research. I couldn't do any of this. I couldn't put them into a jar and carry them across the globe and start planting them and start growing them. By the way, that's what humans have done for millennia. Why in the hell is the banana, which probably originated in Southeast Asia, the, the palatable seedless banana that we know, how did that disperse itself around the world if there weren't people carrying them around? What are the canoe plants? Why is there more sweet potato diversity in Papua New Guinea than there is in the center of origin, its genetic origin, Ecuador or Peru? Why is there more genetic diversity of sunflowers right now, uh, cultivated forms in Russia and China? It's because humans have shared seeds. It's exactly what Edgar Anderson, the former uh, director of the Missouri Botanical Garden said, as governments realize the power in possessing and manipulating, controlling the resources of plant uh, genetics, the more they'll create bureaucracies to obstruct. Now who controls this? Hey, Monsanto doesn't have any problem getting any seed at once. It's no. outside of its convenience. I mean, Syngenta doesn't have any problems. Bayer has no problems. These mega corporations have the wherewithal to hire all the lawyers to get any seed they want and to own anything they want. They patent them. Little home gardeners don't. Little people who want to be self-sufficient don't. So who are these laws meant to, to crush? They're meant to crush the resistance, the people like you and me who know the difference, the people like you and me who are smart enough to ask the question, the people like you and me who are not going to submit to this ridiculous and absolutely pretend benevolent governments that are out to protect us. That's why they spray us with Roundup. That's why they inject us with exploratory and, and experimental vaccines. And that's why we're submitting to them. No, no. 
That's why this is detrimental to the no. future community. And I grow Mashua and I grow Aka and they can go screw. That's the way I look at it. The problem with the bureaucrat in that middle tier that you're looking at, right? They don't want to grow it. They want to not only work with it, they want to develop it, and then they want the legal rights to what they develop so that they can patent it and control it and market it. Because nothing prevents me or you from getting our hands on that material and working with it in our backyard. Nothing. They can say we can't do it. I, I don't know the one you mentioned, the other one, the other kind of rainbow-colored tuber, but Aka and Mashwell, I have growing right here, right now. Okay, Ulucus tuberosus. So there's you know, there's the Mavericks out there who are doing work on acclimating. So we wrote yeah. a book, yeah. uh, 10 Promising Crops for Northern Europe, about 10 years ago, me and my uh, former colleague, Irina Stonescu. And we, we looked at the day-length sensitivity issue for tuberization, For Oka, we looked at the day link sensitivity issue, and there have been some mavericks in the field. Uh, mavericks, including Dr. Alan Kapler, of the, one of the founders of Seeds of Change, he and his family have been acclimatizing Oka and Mashua up in the north uh, west coast in Oregon, in Corvallis, Oregon, for the last 25 years, and they get tuberization, good, and they're good. able to harvest tubers probably by mid October. And the New Zealanders were very efficacious on that. There's a variety which is known as Aztec Gold, which they call them YAMS, Y-A-M-S, um, uh, Oka tuberosa or Axellus tuberosa down in, in New Zealand. And it's uh, quite a starchy variety that's quite stout, and it will tuberize in temperate climates at roughly, oh, 35, wait a second, what are we looking at down there? About 35 latitude or 40, 45, so yeah. They'll tuberize. And so, yeah, there's been this kind of thing. And this is, again, my proof that these things need to be treated and domesticated. The opportunities for our future are immense. We should not be cut off by these ridiculous and, and uh, draconian measures and this, this idea that we're somehow doing something harmful to our agriculture. I mean, these things exist in potential, but the amount of people who come into the United States every single day with some type of uh, foreign fruit or vegetable in their intestines, uh, you cannot tell me that they're not able to pass those things that get out somewhere. Well, I mean, I have a variety of goji that I grow here on my property that's known as Phoenix Tears, and it came from the Utah desert, and it came from that. It came from Chinese immigrants who built the railroad out there, taking a dump in the middle of the desert hundreds of years ago, and then it naturalized, and then eventually it was found, and somebody started cultivating it and made it available. Like, that's that's one way, but I mean... You've you've been all over. You've eaten all these different plants. You've tried all these different plants. What do you see as like a plausible scenario for the future of food? I mean, who will be the new innovators? I, obviously, these bureaucrats we're talking about, they can't do it because they're going to play by the rules. But once we, one thing we know about biology and life, in the, in the words of Jeff Goldblum's character in, in Jurassic Park, life will uh, find a way, right? So like, and we're there. Look. What I want to do, I mean, part of the reason that I'm creating these, this series of books is I, I realize this knowledge has to be compiled and it has to be shared. So my first book is coming out in English. It was, it was printed in a, in a different edition in Japan two years ago. And it is a part of a series called Bizarre Edible Plants, Unknown Delicacies. So the issue here is that we have all of these gems waiting to be domesticated. Now, it is not going to take us thousands of years to domesticate plants. 
The no. fast track includes using different technologies, gene identification. Again, I'm not a Luddite. I'm happy to use these things that make sense. I do not believe that at this point in time in our era that we're so desperate that as Nina Fedorov propounds, that we have to resort to genetic manipulation for the survival of humanity. One of her most preposterous presentations, it's almost tear-jerking, she says the only way we're oh. going to feed a hungry world is through the genetic advancement and the genetic manipulation of present crops to make them more resilient. The woman, I want to get on a stage with this woman. She's illustrious. She's a National Science Foundation. She's a national academician. This woman is so has her head so far up her anus that we cannot possibly imagine. These people are selfish. They're completely converted to a system, much like Dr. Fauci. I mean, this is the kind of people we're talking about. And she's expounding on this. She's She's been honored by every imaginable university around the world. She was, And I'm going to tell you right now, you'll never be on a stage where she won't debate you. None of these people, whether it's in ag, whether it's Fauci in medicine, none of these people will debate a person with a command of the facts. They will never do it. I put out a challenge to debate people, any doctor, any PhD, anybody on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and zinc for COVID. Zero challengers. Absolutely. No, no, and I offered like it was ridiculous. I'm like, you can have two assistants, you can look up information. I'll give you 30 minutes of extra time. We'll do it in a live debate format. All the subjects are agreed upon in advance. I get one page of notes. I'm a redneck hippie duck farmer podcaster. Nobody. If I, Joseph, if I had made that challenge, if I would have came out and said mixed martial arts fighting is fake, I'll take on any mixed martial arts fighter. I would have had my ass kicked by Thursday, right? Because they know they can do it, right? What you know you can do, you do. So the point is they have to always be on the defensive. They always have to be on the attack, but they always stay off the stage when it comes to a real confrontation. They don't attack your facts. They attack your person. They oh, attack your credentials. They oh, attack your integrity. You know what it looks like? Have you ever seen the way Scientology treats a prominent person who leaves Scientology? There's a pattern of the attack of the person themselves. They're immoral. They're you know, and they 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 slander the hell out of the person. It's it's a cult, right? Scientology is a cult, and this intellectual uh, statism. It's like state-based intellectualism is also a cult, and all cults behave the same. Way When there's a dissenter, instead of saying, okay, well, you're wrong, so let's intellectually, let's rigorously, academically debate the facts so that we can find the answer or we can show that you're wrong. Instead of that, no, we will ad hominem attack the individual, their lack of initials after their name, whatever, and the more credentialed they are when they turn against you, the more insidious the personal attack, right? So, like, if it's just, you know... there's a guy out right now talking about the spike proteins with the vaccine. This guy was actually a researcher funded by the government to research the vaccine. So we got to really attack him. You see what I mean? Like if he was like some third-party doctor who just spoke out, well, we attack him pretty hard. But if he's one of your own and that gives him added credibility, now we got to like, we got to like rake his kids through the coals. Like, and that's what these people do. That woman, I, I don't know her. But I know she'll never sit on a stage with you and debate with you. Never. Well, look, you know Jeffrey Smith. 
and his approach to discussing the the risk, the dangers, and the caution that we should have to genetically modify food has been ridiculed by so many of these people. And guess how they did it? They tried to discredit him as non-degreed, oh. as a practicant of flying yoga. I mean, they, they tried to talk about how he discusses how he can fly with yoga. And that's their measure of attack on Jeffrey Smith. Jeffrey Smith is an extraordinarily uh, on-the-point researcher on the risk of manipulating genes. I mean, anyone who stands back and says, you know, we don't know the sophistication of these uh, effects that we're uh, going to see ensue because we move the genes around in the DNA. Nobody can say that because time is not passed presently to do so. And it's very clear to me that in, uh, that inserting bacillus thurogenesis genes in corn <laughs> has a very deleterious effect on Lepidoptera. Because I used to go across the plain states and I look, get out and look at the radiator as a young child and collect the beetles and bugs that were on it and the butterflies. And to me, it's very evident that there has been an extraordinary, uh, drastic demise in Lepidopterous populations because of this now poisonous pollen floating across much of the Great Plains states. So when we look at the kind of insidious things we've done, it's not, uh, it's not implausible to be prudent and to kind of halt the, put the brakes down, halt this. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, like, and that doesn't mean you're, you or I are anti-science because you use the term there, gene selection. I actually got heat from my audience for being an advocate of gene selection. And that's, you know, instead of just we plant everything and select the thing we want, we can actually look, like, use technology and say out of these 10,000 seeds, here's the hundred we should plant. Like, oh, to me, that's exciting. There's nothing unnatural about that. We're just accelerating the natural selective process that we've been doing. And that's the, the convolution that the GMO uh, advocates do, they always say, well, man's been doing this for 10,000 years. No, jackass. What man's been doing for 10,000 years is selecting a trait. We haven't been taking a, a gene from a fish and splicing it into cotton. Because that can never happen. That can never happen in nature. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And so they get around with half-ass arguments and half-ass propositions, and they confuse people. Because if you are sit on buses or you sit, talk in an airport, you'll find that even literate and literary and educated people have very uh, poor grasp of what this whole GMO thing is. I mean, GMO has become a uh, a bad word because it has its um, enemies, but they don't really know why. They don't understand it. And then the it's, advocates, the educated advocate will say, well, something like, they'll say something stupid like, well, what about golden rice? It keeps people from going blind. And then you ask them, okay, tell me one place right now where they're actually growing it. And you get a blank freaking stare. It was a publicity stunt. It's a it, publicity it, stunt. Like, And, and to think that you needed... You needed GMO to do that anyway is stupid. They had to eat 20 kilos a day to get any uh, substantial <laughs> vitamin A from it. 20 kilos. <laughs> what is that, like 48 pounds or something like yeah. that? Yeah, incredible. Unbelievable. So um, we, we've, but, gone okay, almost, so we've gone we, almost two hours. I want to kind of wrap up here. Um, yeah. 
So we took that little detour real quick. So the point is, all of the future lies, and this is where the public intellectual is so important, and the public intellectual can dress any way they want. They can talk any way they want. They can have prejudices any way they want. The difference with a public intellectual is that they think for themselves, and they search to be creative with their knowledge, and they seek to think outside the box. So when it comes to the future of agriculture, I make mention of people like Jim Claypool, or I think about... um Neil, um, what the hell is his name? Uh, Neil Peters, who's been breeding uh, one of my favorite fruits in North America, which is Asminia triloba, which is the which is the pawpaw. If you look up, do you know Neil Peters? I don't know Neil Peters, but I'm very familiar with pawpaws. Okay, well Neil Peters has been breeding and selecting superior varieties of pawpaws. And, and he's has, he has several patented varieties. Okay, so give him the give him the leniency that he's gone out and patented these. But he's a he's a very brilliant man, and he's a public intellectual. He's a man who's just done this by himself. So what I'm going to do is just point out a couple. Jim Claypool in Illinois, uh, there is a plot of land with this uh, man's life work. He was breeding and selecting Diospyros virginiana, which is the American persimmon. And he was looking for enhanced sweetness. He was looking for uh, more beautiful fruits, and he was looking for more flavorful fruits. And so the Jim Claypool um, gene pool is actually still there. There is a curator, and you can go there, and you can ask for budwood to graft onto your trees and hence take on the legacy of Jim Claypool. These were two men. Another man was very important uh, in my uh, examples that referred to more recent domestication. Uh, his name is Edgar Valdivia. You may even know him. He was a friend with Diego. I think, he, I think Diego was his friend. But anyway, this guy is a retired computer technician and programmer from Peru, but he lives in Simi Valley, California. So several years ago, I became his friend, but more than that, It was the end of a saga because I was hired by a very wealthy man in uh, Switzerland to travel the globe to search out the superior dragon fruit. Oh, wow. This is highly yeah. serious. So what was the superior dragon fruit according to the prescripts? It was to find a fruit that was sweet, that didn't just taste like, you know, a bland Swedish card, Swedish piece of cardboard, but rather was sweet and had that that taunt of uh, acidity that made it, you know, seductive, like a strawberry. So he sent me all around the world. I started in London. I went through uh, Asia. I went uh, all. I went to Israel. In fact, I was keyed into the prowess of this man, Edgar Valdivia, because there was a guy by the name of Yossi Mizrahi. Yossi Mizrahi was a Yemeni Jew who, who was a professor at Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba. And I flew in and I met him. He took me to several kibbutzes where he was working on these superior uh, cultivars of dragon fruit. And I started talking to him, and I, I learned something. I said, well, where are you getting some of these uh, initial stocks from? He says, oh, there's some guy in California who really is like a collector of dragon fruit, and he, he has a few things, you know. He didn't elaborate on it very much. So my search takes me around the globe. I go back to the California Rare Fruit Growers Association, and they tell me about Edgar. Go visit him at his house, become his friends. A, a couple of years later, I go back. And he says, Joe, I have something for you. 
He says, it's my newest creation. I've been working on it for six years. He's been cross-pollinating different type of Hyalocerus and Selenocerus fruits. And he had this spectacular big green dragon fruit. He says, it's not completely ripe. It takes 45 days. He said, but I'm sure it tastes the way it's supposed to. So he said, you get to taste the first fruit. So he gave it to me. Remember, this is not a institutionalized botanist, not an institutionalized breeder. This is a damn guy who was a computer programmer who retired and started breeding cactus and growing them in his backyard. He gives it to me. We cut it open. It's extraordinarily beautiful magenta inside. It's just, it's luscious looking. He says, okay, now taste it. So he gives me a spoon and I put it in my mouth and I swear to goodness, it blew my mind. It was sweet. It was sweet. I mean, if you've eaten dragon fruits, they're pretty, but they're like bland, blasé. You know, it's a gorgeous piece on a, on a fruit salad, but not something you would relish. And it was tart. I said, geez, oh, Pete, Edgar, you've done it. He went and got his, his um, bricks meter to measure the sugar content. It was bricks 18. A sweet watermelon is 10. This was 18. Okay. So he, and as I'm going to explain the rest of this, to show you the benevolence of the public intellectual. He, he said, Joe, he says, you can take the first cuttings and you can do whatever you want with them. I said, well, first thing I want to do with this, I want to name it. So I named it Edgar's Baby. And then I took it to a, a friend of mine who has a tissue culture laboratory. And I said, I want to get this commercialized. I want this to be all over the world. So they've been producing it for the last seven, eight years now. Edgar's Baby, the sweetest, most delicious passion or, or dragon fruit in the entire world. And it was a crossbreeding project by a, you call it, you know, amateur. No, no, I don't call him amateur. I call this guy beyond professional. You go back to Yossi Mizrahi. This guy, part of the institution, Ben Gurion University, was a thief. He had gone and he had taken the benevolence of Edgar Valdivia, who was giving cuttings to everyone with no interest in self, you know, aggrandizement. And this Yossi was passing him off as his own creations. That tells you a little bit about the efficacy of uh, these academics, right? Stilling because they need to enhance their curriculum. You know, it's, just, it's so sad that I, I think you become... I, I, like a curmudgeon of the world when you get to pattern recognition. You're talking about this man's work being stolen and used by somebody more credentialed. And I'm thinking of like comedians like Carlos Mencia that go to like the small nightclubs and steal other comedians' jokes and use them as their own. Like it's the same shit over and over and over. The person that does the work is stolen from. And the person that does the work doesn't even want to con the, the real person that does the work is just, you say, you know, professional or amateur or whatever. You know what I would call the guy? He's an artist. He's an yeah. artist. The true artist creates this art and wants to send it to humanity. And it would be nice if somebody said, this is the guy whose signature is on the painting. He doesn't well, want to make a billion dollars. He wants to simply be known as the person that gave this thing. And yeah. these people steal because they want control more than they want money. Money is a, is a means by which the control is implemented. Well, And it's everywhere, Joseph. It's, ev it's the same pattern. Like that is like the greatest thing. And I already knew it, but what I had 
kind of developed to its potential out of my studies in permaculture was being able to see these patterns where you just know immediately like, okay, that's what I'm looking at. And, and these people are artists. There's people, you, you're talking about this, I can't think of another guy's name, but he also worked with Diego at Voices. Like, uh, it was, it's doing the same thing with hazelnuts, right? He doesn't have a botany degree. I, I he, met that guy too. I met him and he is extraordinary. He's the guy from Oregon? Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's brilliant. Look, look, you can't even get into this because there are breeding and enhancement programs for hazelnut because hazelnuts, because of Nutella, are an extraordinary commercial crop. They can't get enough of them in Europe to make Nutella. So I went all over Europe looking for hazelnuts, hazelnut qualities, hazelnuts that would be in better territories. And this guy in Oregon has beat all of them, and he yeah. has no degree. And he is just passionate, and he's putting things down to a rigorous test method, which rivals anything in a university could do. And he's not asking for you know a three hundred or five hundred or million dollar no. government grant to do his work. It's astonishing. And what I learned from him, like the biggest thing I learned him from him, plant everything and breed for survival. Start your first selection is the thing that will grow and not die. Then take okay. the stuff that grows and not die, and then start selecting for your traits. And like, holy shit! Because all these grants are, we want to we want to breed the orange that can survive this blight or whatever. But they oh, want to yeah. do it like selective right from the beginning. Where his whole thing is, just see what lives, see what lives, and then work with what lives. How simple is that? Absolutely. You know, that's excuse me. They were they were writing this story about the coca plants down in Colombia that were becoming super cocas because they wouldn't die when they were sprayed with herbicides. Yeah. Well, people aren't understanding because of their disconnect again that nature's resilience is why they're all here. The fact that all these things have survived millennia, millions of years, is because the strongest survive. And something is going to survive almost everything, even You know, not everyone was killed during Hiroshima, and that was a damn new nuclear bomb. So that points out to us the survival of, you know, living organisms seek to survive, to bring to the next generation. And we're seeing this with plants and everything. So, you know, it, we could go on for hours and hours here. And we do need we do need to wrap up. This is like one of the longer interviews I've done. I feel like Joe Rogan now with my with a long format. Uh, but it's been great. Tell us a little bit about your book, that of because I think we talked about this last time, and there's still no book, dude. When am I going to be able to get your book? Okay, the book is is actually printed. Okay. The discrepancy was that I wanted a fluorescent pink and vivid fluorescent green cover because it's envisioned okay. to be one of 15 volumes. So I have this color, you know, spectrum planned out for the book. Also, when they're all on a shelf, they'll do this cool thing. Okay. Yeah, so they'll do a cool thing. So the book is, you know, I've gotten to the point in life, Jack, you know, for many years, the the thought of creating a book was a daunting thing because I was always asking myself, am I going to create this, you know, this tedious volume that is just laden with super amounts of information or I'm going to create something that's fun? And it, and I decided fun would be better. So I, I created a book that will take a person around in each book around the world to see things that are edible that they would have never even conceived of. If you think that 20 new plants is exciting, this book only has 72 plants in it, but it will take you to roughly 
uh, 29 or was it 40 different countries? And I mean, I went hard to try to find some of these. When I say I went hard, sometimes it took me years to track down a plant or a fruit because I would hit it at the wrong time. I couldn't find the location. Something was off. So there was a lot of dogged effort in putting this together. And once it's done, it looks easy. So the book has uh, 72 species in it. Bizarre edibles, bizarre edible plants, unknown delicacies. And I, I got the title from a guy by the name of uh, Shogo Kawabata, who was the editor and publisher in uh, Tokyo, Japan, who, who really liked that title for the Japanese audience. And I said, OK, I love it. So we put it together. And now I can kick out books because I tell you, the research has been done. Now it's just putting it together. So specific questions about the books. Do you have any? Uh, when? when? That, that's a big one. When, when are we going to be able to get the first one? When are people going to be able to buy it and have it and, 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 and start implementing what they learn in it? Yeah, so what happened is the uh, publisher in Germany, where it's being published, they came up with a um, – you know, a suggested cover because they found that their four color process couldn't do uh, uh, fluorescent. And I said, no, no, I don't want, you know, pale pink with yellow. I want fluorescent pink with green. <laughs> so they had to resort to getting another fluorescent publisher to print the cover. And uh, now the cover's being printed this week and will be uh, reunited with its book. And hopefully the book will be, you know, ready now. But you can pre-order it on my website. And it's only one of dozens of books that I have planned. In fact, I'm going to write a book on garbage because of this, because of what we talked about today, the philosophy as opposed to the realism of garbage. Well, that's badass. And I'm going to make sure that we talked about a bunch of shit. I made most of it. I put notes down for where people can get this stuff. I'll make sure they can get to your website as well. And I wanted to leave you with a little bit of hope because you said, you know, we're not, you know, making nurseries and we're not, you know, propagating these plants. Just a few days ago, uh, it would have been Wednesday last week, I interviewed a 22-year-old young man in rural Missouri. He had, in the, the title of the episode was Building a Business with a Greenhouse in a Small Town. He's 22 years old, he's married, he has a child already. He's paying his bills, and he's building a business, and his business is primarily plant propagation and making plants and then providing them to people. And th there are... Hundreds. There are hundreds of people doing this in just our audience, dude. Like this is happening. My grandson and I today were outside taking care of the ducks, and I taught him how easy it is to propagate plants from the mint family. Basically, pull this off, stick it in dirt. And I explained to him a business model. Like I'm like, do you see what you just did there? He's like, yeah. I'm like, people down at Home Depot for a shittier plant than this are paying five bucks. Absolutely. And there's, so there's so much being done like this because it is the renegades that become the artists. And I, I think that that's like, that was one of my big things out of this episode. You know, is the person professional? Are they credentialed? Whatever. Are they amateur or whatever? I think that the people really doing the work, that's what they really are. They're artists. They just have a different canvas. I agree with you completely. And I will take that uh, to Steve to put that into my vocabulary because we are artists And, you know, there used to be that old uh, cartoon that we may have seen together as kids. It was necessity is the mother of invention. And I think the necessity is so great and the yearning to reconnect with nature is so great that this kid from Rome, Missouri, is, that you talk about is an example of what's going to come forth. There's going to be a fluorescence. I, I, I call it this. There's going to be a fluorescence. We're going to have a reflowering of the earth. 
in a way that's going to be astonishing. That's where my hope is. And I really hope that between us, between our friends, our colleagues, the people that we know all over the world, it really is not a gloomy thing. And I don't ever adhere to the alarmist attitude because it's it's ridiculous. It's nonsensical and it's deviant to impose this on young people to, to put fear into them like AC, uh, ACO, how she's running around telling, you know, we got 12 years left before the earth fries. <laughs> If that's I, the case, you know, if you're older like we are, we've we've we already saw this movie. We remember when you told us you had 10 years in 1989, and we know how calendar works, and we're yeah. done. But these young kids are far more indoctrinated. You you and I, our generation had indoctrination, but it wasn't as severe. These kids today are severely indoctrinated. We're teaching, I don't want to get off on a whole tangent, but I mean, we're teaching white kids to hate themselves, and oh, we're yeah. teaching black kids that they'll never succeed because of the white kid that now hates himself. This is asinine. But what makes the difference, what makes these artists, is, is a rogue nature, a rebellious nature. That kid we were just talking about from Missouri, the way he got started, he was, he was in high school, and they had a, a, a greenhouse, and he, he kind of like really liked working in the greenhouse. Well, by the time he got to his junior year, he had a professor basically say, unless you take at least one ag course, you can't work in the greenhouse. He's like, I don't want to take your freaking commercial ag course. So he's like, screw it. He went and made his own greenhouse. That's a, hey, look, you know, when I think about some of the great artists, I think of the resiliency and the rebellious uh, element. Salvador Dali went to a very prestigious art, uh, Institute in Barcelona. And when it came down to the moment when he was to be judged by the professional peers, the, the professors, he looked at them and I don't know where this young guy got the balls, but he stood up. He says, none of you are good enough to judge me. And he got up and he walked out. And we don't know who they are, but he is all about <laughs> Well, so, conformity does not require courage. That's right. right. And right. so I really, really enjoy uh, speaking on uh, on these subjects with you, Jack. I don't know how in the hell we're such twins. I mean, I'm not looking for that type of, uh, you know, <laughs> agreement, but you're just hitting so many of the beliefs because I think we arrive at the same logical conclusion. You arrive at logical conclusions. There is such a thing as truth, and you can find it. You can actually find it. It's not all relevant, and it's all not all subjective. Yeah, I, I think we're just the people that – I saw a cartoon recently. It was a huge crowd of people and one guy standing in front of them all, and he, he was saying to the crowd, yes, all of you are wrong. Like if you're willing to be that person, you're going to – and I, I don't think that way because I just think I'm smarter than people or I think I have special knowledge or whatever. I think that way because when I form that opinion – I have not formed that opinion because somebody told me it was true. I have not formed that opinion because I just assumed what somebody told me was wrong. I formed that opinion because I went through a logical process and I've said, uh, it, this, this question, how do we – I've used the, what they don't use in science anymore, the freaking scientific method, and I have, I have gone through that process. And I think when you do, if you have a certain bent to you, you're going to come to similar conclusions. We're, we're not as – much the minority as we think we are. We, we're just, there's not that, the other side of it is most of the people that are like us, they're, they're head down, ass up and, and doing, you know, things and they don't, they don't take the time to come out and speak or they're deplatformed so they don't have the ability to speak, right? And that's, that's why we think, and they want us to think that we're the minority. We're not. 
I'd say we are the minority, but we're not some like tiny, itty bitty, you know, minuscule minority. We're uh, we're large in number because we are we are who humans were before they got to us, right? We're just being natural. Humanity. That's where I rest my hope in humanity. That I mean, look, uh, I sat down with people who get very angry with me when I question things like the evolutionary process. You know, I'm, I'm like looking at them and say, "Well, can you explain how the bee stinger decided to be a bee stinger? Because there has to be some <laughs> process where it decides to be a bee stinger. You know, yes. like how did?" The snake's fang decide to have a little tube in it that it can inject, you know, a neurotoxin into you. How did that happen? And they and they they explain it. What well, that's that's how evolution works. Is it? Yeah, but that no, answer. that's not an answer. That's not an answer. <laughs> that's not an answer. You know what an answer is? An answer is, and we don't have to understand it to believe it is innate intelligence. We can come to this from a thousand different forms of spiritual belief systems. But innate intelligence that exists within the code of life. That's an answer, but they can't give that answer because it takes away everything they base everything they say on. They, yeah. they, they, they have to kill life to explain life. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. They have to kill life to explain life. That's how disconnected that belief system is. There, there is such a genius in creation. There is such a harmony. There is such an extraordinary Uh, intellect behind this, there's, there's, as Einstein said, Einstein was a, was a great agnostic and he was also, as we contend, an extraordinarily brilliant man. He would say, if you take a typewriter, an old fashioned dactylograph, and you disassemble it into its myriad of parts and you throw those up and down for ad infinitum, it's never going to fall back together as a typewriter because the only thing that was missing was the intellect that created it. Correct. All Correct. the parts are there. But hey, they didn't fall together like that by themselves. Uh, okay. Man, I've had a blast today, dude. Thanks for being here. Let's let's not make it another 14 months before you're back on the air. You know, let's let's just get together again sooner than that. I hope a lot of people are just like charged by this and and decide you don't need. See, so many people write me. I mean, I get young people all the time telling me they're going to go get a degree in ethnobotany, this and this. They want to go get a master. Because they believe somehow that's going to give them credibility. It'll ruin them. It'll ruin them. I, I, don't do that. You may think I'm an ass, but don't do that. That's not what you need to do. If you want to be an ethnobotanist, get out there and start living it. And I'll help you. Do yeah. it. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Curtis Stone, but he says he gets people all the time that want to come work with him. Well, not anymore because he quit like doing his farming stuff, but when he was doing his urban farm. And the first thing they wanted to talk about was social justice. He's like, no, we, we plant things here, and we cultivate them, and then we harvest them, and then we replant, and we sell That's what we do. And they couldn't understand it. And that's that's what happens in that disconnected state. And I don't think that person can ever become the artist we were talking about today. So Next time, next time I talk with you, ask me about my talk at Yale University. <laughs> it, 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 I, I, was, I was planning that I was going to have the most incredible intellectual you know, debate and constructive arguments by these illustrious students from the most prestigious, at that point, university in America – And instead, it was the most programmed zombie audience that oh, was yeah. sensitive to their peers' appearances and opinions of them. They, they asked fewer questions than a group of people who would have been in, in, a, in a McDonald's. It, it's just ridiculous. You know, the only good thing about that is that the flaw is so fatal that I don't think we can help but in time win. Because yeah, we don't need Yale 
to teach somebody to feed their family. Absolutely not. Okay, you have a good day. Thank you, Jack. Take care, bro. Bye-bye. Well, I really had a fantastic time during that interview. Um, just want to remind you guys here as we wrap up, and I'll be quick with the wrap-up, too, since the interview was so long. You can always support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Start your shopping there, and no matter what you buy, you will help support us and the work that we do. It's painless, doesn't cost you any more money, and it really only takes you a couple extra seconds uh, when you're doing your online shopping. Today's item of the day is Redmond Real Salt. Redmond Real Salt. I have a great write-up on this today, uh, and I talk about the fact that it is a fantastic-tasting salt. My wife found it. Uh, when she uh, heard a certain YouTube personality say that natural salt would get you all your minerals. And uh, one of the things I do, in spite of the fact that I love my wife and generally don't disagree with her, uh, and we had this talk when, when, when she told me that, was that, no, you, you're not going to get a full mineral profile from salt, not because the minerals aren't there, because they're not there in sufficient quantity. And I even, Redmond has a real salt elemental analysis that I included in that, uh, look up so it's not a health product so much other than it's not a refined product so like, it's probably healthier for you that way but it, natural salts, different sea salts salts from different parts of the world, Himalayan pink etc, they do have unique characteristics and flavors and so this was, when she got this I'm like you didn't do anything wrong, I mean it's still fantastic salt and we started using it a lot as a finishing salt, so in other words salt you put on your food uh, when you're going to eat it versus salt that you use for things like brining or whatever, you know, because it's a little more expensive than kosher. Well, one day I ended up dry brining a pork shoulder, and I ended up using this. And the results I got compared to plain salt were phenomenal. It was like halfway between a plain old uh, dry brine and cure, like using an actual curing salts, um, and the it, overall quality was just better. The deep reddening of the meat was better. So I started trying it on steaks and everything else. Because I, I pretty much dry brine everything now, which basically means you put salt on a thing and you put it on a drying rack so it can get air circulation around it. You stick it in the refrigerator for a day, and then the next day you cook it. That, that's all dry brining is. And I know that people are like, but how much and whatever. So I did a video to go along with this write-up where you can see me uh, dry brine some steaks. And I have one that's already, it's not fully done, but it's done enough to see the difference in it. And I really recommend that you uh, you give it a shot. Uh, again, it's called Redmond, R-E-D-M-O-N-D, Real Salt. You can probably find it in the grocery store and all, but you can also get it on Amazon. And, of course, I have my links there. And whenever you use my links and, and shop through tspaz.com, you help support us and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day today. And we are doing Swamp Week. And um, John Adam put together a group of songs that were Swamp Songs. Uh, we had uh, Born on the Bayou yesterday. Uh, today, I have actually called an audible, not because there's anything wrong with any of the songs that John picks. Sometimes John picks songs, and I'm like, I don't like that song, so I pick my own. No, when he did Swamp Week, I never even thought of doing that. But as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh, I, there's a song that has to play here. And I'm sure he didn't include it, because I'm pretty sure I've played it before, a long time ago. Um, but it's by the Charlie Daniels band. Of course, Charlie Daniels uh, left us not so long ago. And uh, we may have even played this then, because uh, we had a Char Charlie Daniels tribute week. But of course, Swamp Week, Charlie Daniels, the legend of Wooly Swamp. I cannot have a Swamp Week and not play this song. And I'll also say that this song, along with things like Devil That Went Down to Georgia, is my assertion that before rap was a thing in the 80s, Charlie Daniels was already doing rap 
in the 70s. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's a spot in the yard in the back of that shack with a 